Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, and today I'm going to talk about yet another chemotherapy drug. And today it's a drug called cyclophosphamide. Cyclophosphamide, also called cytoxan in America, but mostly we call it cyclophosphamide. And cyclophosphamide is one of the commonest drugs we use in treating children with cancer and leukemia. So it's an important drug to know about. So what I'm going to do is talk about what diseases we use cyclophosphamide with. Then I'm going to talk a bit about how we give it and what sort of doses and all of that sort of thing. Then I'm going to talk about the short-term side effects. And then I'm going to talk about any long-term side effects. So first off, what diseases do we use cyclophosphamide in? Well, we use it in a lot of different types of cancer and leukemia. So... We use it in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, very often used in that disease. Not every protocol would have cyclophosphamide, but many would. It is a drug that can be used in acute myeloid leukemia, but these days it doesn't tend to be included in the usual AML protocols. But in some situations, we may end up using cyclophosphamide in AML. It's a drug that's used in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's used in Hodgkin's disease. And then when we look at the solid tumours, it's used in a lot of those as well. It's a standard drug to use in many cases of rhabdomyosarcoma. Not all cases, but many. It's used in Ewing sarcoma. It's used in neuroblastoma. It's sometimes used in osteogenic sarcoma, but it's not the routine sort of drug to include for osteogenic sarcoma. It's used in a lot of brain tumour protocols, so it's particularly used in the treatment of medulloblastoma and certain other brain tumours. It wouldn't be a routine drug to use in Wilms tumour, but it might be used in the unfavourable forms of Wilms tumour, so the anaplastic Wilms tumour or some of the other types of cancer that can occur in the kidney. Finally, it's a drug that gets used in bone marrow transplantation sometimes. If you've listened to my podcast on bone marrow transplants, you will have heard that for a bone marrow transplant, we have to give chemotherapy, usually to wipe out the patient's bone marrow before they get given the new bone marrow. Well, there's a number of drugs that are used for that purpose, and cyclophosphamide is one of them sometimes. Now, how do we give cyclophosphamide? Well, most of the time when we treat children with cancer these days with cyclophosphamide, we're giving it intravenously. So we're usually giving it as a drip into their central line. And so that's what I'll talk about mostly. But you can give cyclophosphamide by mouth. You can get it as tablets and make it into a syrup. And there are some places where we still use cyclophosphamide given that way, given orally in a lower dose. And cyclophosphamide is actually used outside of cancer treatment for certain other situations as an immune-suppressing drug. It mightn't be being used that much anymore for that, but there was a time when it was used as an immune-suppressing drug. I think they also used to give it intramuscularly, so an injection into the muscle 
I've never actually done that myself, but I think some of the really old protocols gave cyclophosphamide that way. But no, most of the time when we're giving cyclophosphamide these days, we're giving it intravenously. Now, the big thing with cyclophosphamide to know about is you always need to know what dose are we talking about with cyclophosphamide because there's a wide range of different doses of cyclophosphamide that you can give from low and medium doses right through to super, super high doses. And the dose of cyclophosphamide that's being used is going to have a big impact on how severe the side effects might be from cyclophosphamide. So dose is everything. You need to know what dose we're talking about. Now, an interesting thing about cyclophosphamide is that it's not actually active in killing cancer when you first give it. It actually gets activated in the patient's liver to form a different form of cyclophosphamide, and it's this 4-HC version of cyclophosphamide that actually goes and kills the cancer. So that's just for your interest. An important thing to know is that cyclophosphamide then gets broken down in the body into various other chemicals. And one of those chemicals, as it leaves the body in the urine, it can damage the urinary bladder. So it can cause what we call hemorrhagic cystitis. So whenever we give higher doses of cyclophosphamide, we always run the drip at a very high rate, what we call double maintenance fluids. So we work out how much fluids a person normally needs in a drip for a day, and we give the drip at twice that rate. That's called double maintenance fluids. And the idea of that is that whenever that drug metabolite is excreted in the urine, well, it will always be there in a dilute concentration There'll also be a lot of water in the urine, and so it's less likely to burn the urinary bladder. So once we get above a certain dose of cyclophosphamide, then we would normally be giving this double-maintenance fluids to follow the cyclophosphamide. Now, how long the fluids go for, again, that's going to depend on the cyclophosphamide dose. And if we're giving, say, 1,000 milligrams per metre squared, of cyclophosphamide, well, maybe we'll give the fluids just for six hours in the clinic and then be able to send the patient home. But if we're giving higher doses than that, or particularly if we're giving high doses for a few days in a row, then we might want to give the drip for 24 hours after the dose of cyclophosphamide. Now, different units will have different approaches and different policies, but whether we can just give fluids for the day in the clinic or whether we need to put the patient in hospital and give them fluids around the clock, these sorts of things have to be considered, and it depends a lot on the dose of the drug that you're giving. It also depends on what other drugs you're giving with the cyclophosphamide, because a more complicated protocol of chemotherapy might require that the patient be in hospital. Now, there's another thing that we do to protect the urinary bladder from this cyclophosphamide metabolite, and that's to give a drug called Mesna. Mesna, M-E-S-N-A, Mesna. Now, Mesna isn't a chemotherapy drug, but what Mesna does is it binds to that toxic metabolite and protects the bladder from getting the hemorrhagic cystitis. So, as the 
cyclophosphamide metabolite is excreted in the urine, well, it ends up bound to this mesna in a chemical sort of a way, and that stops it from irritating the bladder. And so once we get above a certain dosage of cyclophosphamide, then as well as giving all the fluids, then we would also give this mesna drug to protect the urinary bladder. Mesna itself doesn't tend to have great side effects in standard doses. I'm sure it has some in the fine print, but mostly we find that it doesn't cause any great problems. There are some doses of cyclophosphamide that can be given intravenously without all the fluids and without the mesna, so they're the lower doses of cyclophosphamide, and some of them can be given quite quickly, and then the patient can go home soon afterwards. But most of the time when we give cyclophosphamide these days, we're giving doses that would need to have the fluids with them, and very often they're doses that would need the mesna with them. So often we're giving the drug as maybe a one-hour infusion followed by fluids and mesna, or sometimes a longer infusion. I've seen a six-hour combination followed by fluids and mesna, and that's the typical sort of way we give cyclophosphamide most of the time. Now, the drug can also cause nausea and vomiting, and so often we're giving some medications to prevent nausea and vomiting at the same time. And there's a podcast of mine that talks about the anti-vomiting drugs. You can listen to that and hear all about them. Next, I want to talk about the side effects of cyclophosphamide. And firstly, I want to talk about side effects that occur while you're giving the drug and then in the weeks afterwards. So things that happen during the treatment phase with cyclophosphamide. So I've already told you about that hemorrhagic cystitis that can occur. And that's a condition where the bladder gets irritated by the drug and then you can end up with blood in the urine coming from the bladder. So the bladder is irritated and starts leaking blood into the urine. And so patients on cyclophosphamide will often have their urine tested with the urine dipstick to look for any sign of any microscopic amounts of blood that might be in the urine. And eventually, in a severe case, you can actually see blood in the urine and it can end up you know, looking like red wine in extreme cases. You can get severe bleeding into the urine bladder blood clots the whole bit it can be severe and that's why we go to such lengths to avoid hemorrhagic cystitis next side effect i've also mentioned already and that's nausea and vomiting and so we would often be giving medications to prevent that cyclophosphamide is one of the drugs that leads to hair loss i guess it's a bit variable and like i said with cyclophosphamide everything comes down to dose There are lower doses and there are higher doses. And at the higher doses, then all the more, there's that risk that the hair will fall out. A very important group of side effects with cyclophosphamide is the suppression of bone marrow. And so I've talked about that before. When you give chemotherapy that affects the bone marrow, then the bone marrow stops making blood cells. And so those blood cells that should have come off the assembly line 7, 10, 12 days later, well, they're just not emerging from the bone marrow, and that makes the blood counts drop. So, again, it all depends on the dose as to how severe this effect will be. If you're giving very high doses of cyclophosphamide, then you can count on the blood counts going quite low 7, 10, 12 days after the chemotherapy. The red cells may drop low enough to need a blood transfusion. 
the platelet count will drop. The platelet counts might go low enough that bruising starts to occur, and it may be that a platelet transfusion is given if the platelet count is too low or if there's bleeding occurring. And of course, the white blood cell count will go low, and that will leave the patient with an impaired ability to fight infection. And that's why patients on cyclophosphamide and chemotherapy in general, if they get a fever, they need to be in touch with their hospital. And very often we put them straight in hospital on antibiotics because low white blood cell count equals can't kill germs for yourself, need antibiotics to kill them for you. These bone marrow side effects will occur and then the bone marrow will recover normally within about a three-week cycle in time to give the drug again sometimes within a two-week cycle. It all depends on the dose, and it depends a bit on the individual patient, how long they're going to take to recover, and how severe the drop in blood counts will be. But at the very high doses, this suppression of bone marrow can be quite prolonged and quite severe. Most of the time these days, if we're giving the high doses of cyclophosphamide, we'll follow the chemotherapy with an injection of a drug that stimulates the white blood cell production. So there's a drug called GCSF, and it comes in a long-acting form called PEG-GCSF. This is an injection that's given under the skin, and normally we give it the day after chemotherapy finishes. And this is a drug that's designed to push the bone marrow a bit harder to make white blood cells earlier than would normally have been the case. Blood count still tends to bottom out and go low, but it tends to recover more quickly. So that's a drug we're very often giving with high doses of cyclophosphamide. Patients given cyclophosphamide can develop mouth ulcers, particularly at the higher doses. And remember that often patients getting cyclophosphamide are also receiving other chemotherapy drugs at the same time. So for instance, in neuroblastoma high-risk protocols, patient will usually get doxorubicin and vincristine at the same time. Patients with Ewing sarcoma will also usually get vincristine and doxorubicin at the same time. Well, doxorubicin can cause mouth ulcers as well. So when you give a very strong dose of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide together, well, there's a chance of getting mouth ulcers. I wouldn't say every patient gets the mouth ulcers, but some do. They're the main acute side effects we see with cyclophosphamide. And again, the severity of them all is going to depend on the individual child, but also on the dose of cyclophosphamide that's used. But really, it's nausea, vomiting perhaps, hair loss, low blood counts, that's the big one, and a risk of hemorrhagic cystitis, but we normally go to some lengths to avoid that. Next, I want to talk about the long-term side effects of cyclophosphamide, and they can be important. And... Like with a lot of our drugs, we wish we had a way to cure cancer without giving cyclophosphamide. What we know is that it's one of the most important drugs to curing a lot of forms of childhood cancer, so we really need to give it. But there are some long-term side effects that we need to mention. The first one to mention is fertility. Cyclophosphamide is a drug that can cause impaired fertility or it can cause infertility. Again, it all depends on the dose. 
There are combinations of cyclophosphamide where only medium doses are used. For instance, in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, in the standard risk protocol, we're only giving medium amounts of cyclophosphamide. In our intermediate risk Hodgkin's protocol, we're only giving modest amounts of cyclophosphamide. On the other hand, in some protocols, we use a lot more cyclophosphamide. What we end up doing is looking at the total cumulative amount of cyclophosphamide that's being given through the course of the protocol. So we add up all the doses, and that gives us some sense of any risk to fertility that might occur. We then need to look at that and think about, is it a male patient or is it a female patient? Is the patient in puberty or beyond, or are they pre-puberty? I think it's fair to say that with the higher cumulative doses of cyclophosphamide, we particularly would worry about the patient who is male and post-puberty. So the adolescent or adult male given high cumulative doses of cyclophosphamide, that's a particular patient we would worry about. And so if we have time, we would normally look at a fertility referral and we might look at sperm banking. So we may look at freezing sperm in the freezer to use later on in life just in case the chemotherapy causes infertility. There are similar approaches in female patients. We can consider harvesting eggs and freezing them if we've got time, but that often takes a few weeks. There are some units that are looking at harvesting a piece of ovary and putting it in the freezer to use again later on. These are all complex matters and we could talk for hours about them. But in patients who are going to receive a lot of cyclophosphamide, it may be that a discussion with the fertility unit should take place at the start of treatment to see what can be done to preserve fertility. I'm not saying everyone given cyclophosphamide is going to end up infertile. I have patients who have had lots of cyclophosphamide and then gone on and had babies. I'm just saying that it's something to be considered and it may be that some sort of fertility preservation strategy can be considered at initial diagnosis if time permits. Another long-term side effect of cyclophosphamide is just as scary. It is true that cyclophosphamide use can increase the risk of getting leukemia later in life, that is, of getting a new form of cancer later in life, normally leukemia we're talking about. And so after curing someone of their cancer with cyclophosphamide, then five, ten years later and beyond, there is a slightly higher risk of them going on now to develop leukemia, a second malignancy, not related to the first one, but related to the use of cyclophosphamide. Now, that is a slight risk, but it is a real risk. It is an established risk that we know about. So for these reasons, like I said, we wish we had ways to cure cancer without using cyclophosphamide. They're the main long-term side effects of cyclophosphamide that I want to mention today. So that risk of affecting fertility in an adverse fashion and that slight risk 
of a second malignancy later in life after treatment with cyclophosphamide. So they're the main long-term side effects that I would like to discuss today. So I think I'll stop there on cyclophosphamide. Again, it's one of the most important drugs that we use in childhood cancer and we use it in a lot of different diseases. Remember that it all depends on what dose you're using as to how it will be given, over how long and how severe might the side effects be. Most of the time we're giving it intravenously and giving it with a lot of fluid to protect the urinary bladder and oftentimes we're giving that other drug, Mesna, with it also to protect the urinary bladder. Thanks for tuning in today to Understanding Childhood Cancer. Remember we have a Facebook page and if you need me to clarify anything about this, well, do let me know. Leave me some stars at iTunes. But for now, I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.